Hey everyone, welcome to the Irish Training Podcast. In this week's episode, I'm talking with Jen Kramer. Jen describes herself as a web design teacher, but that barely scratches the surface of what she does. She is a speaker, she's a teacher, she's a writer, she does videos, she does 101 things that involve teaching web design. Her latest project is working with us here at Irish Training on a series of videos and a book all about Bootstrap 4. In this episode, we talk about her teaching background, about how she approaches teaching and tries to avoid focusing on specific frameworks or specific platforms in favor of teaching her students how to think. Hey, Jen, welcome to the OS Training Podcast. Hey, Steve. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, Jen, we go back, oh, more years than I care to remember at this point. Oh, uh, yes, yes. In technology years, I think we've known each other like uh, 70 years or something like that, about about 10 calendar years. Yeah, definitely. I was trying to remember before the podcast, it must have been, I'm thinking 2007-ish, there used to be a, a CMS Expo event where they invited people from the open source world, from Drupal, Joomla, WordPress, up to Chicago. I think that must have been the first time we met. I'm pretty sure that must have been it. Yeah, that was a great conference. And so we used to talk a lot and maybe less so in the last couple of years. So I started to dig back and see what you've been doing. And you've been, I do it for everyone. Before they come on the podcast, I do a little bio research. And with you, it took me like half an hour for what you've been up to lately. Um, (laughs) You've been speaking uh, O'Reilly conferences, Mm -hmm. all sorts of different conferences. You've Mm -hmm. been writing several books. You've been teaching. you teach at Harvard. You've been doing uh, videos, including some bootstrap videos coming up for us. How do you introduce yourself? Well, so many different things going on. (laughs) I just tell people that I teach the web. It's easier than trying to explain all the things that I do. (laughs) Oh, so you don't lead and say, hey, I'm a Harvard teacher or anything like that? Uh, Well, if it comes up, yes, then I'll talk about that. But yeah, I pretty much everything that I do leads back to teaching in some way or another, whether that's doing a conference talk or whether that's teaching classes at Harvard or whether that is uh, creating video series or writing books. It it all goes back to teaching. Is it possible to make a good living as a teacher these days? I ask because we're in the teaching space ourselves and we know quite a few people that have found it hard over the years and dropped out to do different things. Can you make a living teaching the web these days? You can, but you have to be really smart about it and you have to have a freelancer mindset. So if you're expecting teaching gigs just to sort of roll your way, then you'll probably wind up being kind of disappointed. It's really something where I've become really good at, often I create the content for my Harvard classes first and sort of test it out there on my students and make sure they're able to understand it. And then I can take that same content and I can repackage it, put it into a conference talk, repackage it into a workshop, repackage it into some kind of writing, repackage it into a video series for some sort of publisher. So the concept is to create your content once and repurpose it as often as possible. Content creation, when you're teaching and you do it well, takes a long time. And so you have to be very mindful about your target audience and who they are, what do they know coming into it, and make sure that you are putting your content at exactly the right level to make maximum impact with that particular audience, especially considering the time that you have. If you have a 15-week Harvard class, then it's really easy to go into depth on details. But if you've got a 30-minute conference talk, then you've got to keep it higher level. So, So being cognizant of the different venues and how to repackage the content is really important as well. 
So I made a joke at the beginning, mm -hmm. all the different things that you do, but yeah. it's kind of an inevitable, an inevitable way that you you have to be in order to make money from teaching these days, in order That's to make right. a living. You have to be jumping from one gig to another and having a lot of irons in the fire. That's right. That's right. Always be talking to people and always be thinking about how could you take this next lecture and repurpose it and repackage it and sell it to somebody else in a different format. So we've mentioned it a couple of times, but the thing that will probably get people's eyebrows really raised is the fact you teach at Harvard. Yes. So you teach web design at Harvard these days? <laughs> I do. I do. And you all should come. So I'm sure everyone is familiar with Harvard University. This is that Harvard University right down the street here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Wait, so you, you sit down in one of those great big 16th century or what 17th century buildings in downtown Boston and hold the classes there? Or is it online? Oh, wouldn't that be fabulous? But no, I teach right here in my home okay. <laughs> because most of my classes are online. So Harvard University has many different schools you're familiar with, like the med school, the business school, the dental school, the law school and so forth. Well, this is the extension school. And the purpose of the extension school, which has been around now for over 100 years, is to extend the Harvard campus to people who are unable to give up their lives and their jobs and so forth and come to Harvard to work on a full-time degree program. The extension school is for those who do have lives and jobs, but yet want to pursue higher education. They're Harvard quality people. They are smart, they are driven, and they're willing to somehow find that balance between their work and their life and school and manage to get it done. Graduation is tomorrow, so I'm like really fired up as always, like the best week of the year right now, watching everybody graduate after all the years of work that they've put in on their degrees. Oh, so these people may be taking six, seven, eight years to to finish their degrees? Uh, they can take a maximum of five and five years to complete and many of them do. So I teach in the digital medium program at Harvard Extension School. We have a front end web design certificate, which anybody can enroll in. It takes four classes, you know, choose from a certain list of classes. My old boss jokingly called it the Jen Kramer certificate because it's possible to take four classes with me and, <laughs> and, and earn the certificate. Or, of course, there's lots of other stuff. The digital media program is quite broad. We have web design, both front end and back end, um, including some of the latest JavaScript out there, like React is one of the things that we teach. We also include film as part of this degree. So learning to make videos, edit them, and so forth. And we also include instructional design. So students in the degree program wind up taking some number of web classes, some number of film classes, and some number of instructional design. Now, a lot of people think that's an odd mismatch, but in fact, the theme that goes through all of that is storytelling. These days, I don't think you can really put out a film without having a website to support it. So many websites all have films on them. Instructional design incorporates both web and film into what they do. And so there's a lot of synergy that's happening there. It's a, a really useful degree. And gosh, we have a bunch of people graduating this year. I'm just really excited about my this year's graduating class. They're absolutely amazing people. Okay, so tell me if I'm completely on the wrong track here, but it sounds almost as if you're teaching them to be multidisciplinary. That's a $100,000 word for something much more <laughs> simple. Um, almost like many versions of yourself, you're teaching them to be digital media experts in terms of knowing a bit of code, knowing a bit of video, knowing a bit of storytelling, being able to wrap it all together in the kind yeah. of website packages that people want these days. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And people who go into freelancing, this is a really great degree for you because, because you do have that broad base. 
People who work in industry tend to focus in some areas more than others. So they might take the minimum number of film classes, minimum number of instructional design classes, and then focus really deeply on web classes, for example. Maybe they're really interested in JavaScript or really interested in some sort of database-driven technologies. And that can come together in the capstone class, which is the very last class that they take. As you may be aware, for most master's degree programs, you write a big paper called a thesis where you go out and you do all this research and so forth. A capstone is better suited to a program like this where one does not research a website. <laughs> you know, this is a very practical sort of master's degree. So instead of writing a paper about how to build a website, we actually build them. And that is done at the capstone. So we have students who make full length films. Well, full length being like uh, 15 to 20 minutes which actually takes a long time to put that together. We have students that build courses. We have students that build amazing websites that do really cool things. So do you get a lot of freedom to pick your curriculum? I can imagine with, well, I know with some computer science degrees, they often end up being stuck with like a, a bootstrap two book. I yeah. know we've had quite a lot of universities and colleges adopt our Drupal book and quite often they specifically request an old version of the book. Yeah. Like an old Drupal 7 book. Hey, yeah. I need the version that was released in 2016 because they're locked into that old book. Yeah. Is that the way Harvard treats it or do you get a lot of freedom to, to teach the latest version of whatever you need to teach? Yeah. This is one of the downsides to academia. And broadly speaking, in academia, there are set curricula. The curricula may be set a year or two in advance. There's no real reflection on how the web it changes as rapidly as it does. But Harvard Extension is completely different. We do not know what we are going to be offering for classes from year to year. That is like the best thing ever. So every year in February, we have our faculty propose what kind of courses they might want to teach for the coming year. And they give it a title and they give it a description. Those are reviewed by the administration. They decide what they want to offer for the next year. And then that becomes the curriculum. So rather than saying in the list of required classes, you know, you will take website design 101. Instead, we just say you will take some number of web design courses. And what qualifies as a web design course? Well, that changes from year to year, depending on who we have coming back to teach again. In practicality, our faculty doesn't really turn over that often because it is such a great place to teach. We can teach exactly what we want to teach. We can be on the cutting edge. And this, for me, is a moral question as much as anything else. I think there's something immoral about teaching technologies that are out of date. You're not preparing students for the real world, and you're taking a lot of their money in order to do that. So I consider it extremely important that I stay on the cutting edge and teach the skills that the students can leave the program and immediately go into the workplace and put those same skills right to use. That is what I always strive to do. So the inevitable question is, what does that involve this year? What do you see are the cutting edge technologies that the students need to learn? What are you teaching to them in the classroom? Well, so I have two classes that are a pair, Modern and Mobile Front-End Web Design 1 and 2, and it's basically CSS, and I spread that out over a full year. The fall term is, is a lot of, let's focus on different topics, loosely grouped. So for example, I do a unit on CSS animation, CSS transforms, CSS filtering, and SVG, and I bundle that all together into a unit. But fundamentally, it's like one technology after the other. In the spring, we go deep into some other things. So we do a whole big unit on responsive design. 
And we don't just look at responsive design using floats. We also look at it using Flexbox and we're doing responsive design with Grid. We're also incorporating CSS variables. We're incorporating CSS calc, the ability to actually do math in CSS. These are like really cutting edge things that not a lot of people are aware of yet, but are incredibly cool and are really gonna revolutionize the way we do responsive design. And this year, for the last three weeks of class, I actually had my students build their own responsive design framework. And I made them write their documentation and examples for it as well. So the challenge for the students was not necessarily to learn the responsive design pieces or the SAS, which we also covered in that class, but to build out code that could be reused, that was documented well, and comes with examples. And it was so much fun. The students loved it. I'm so proud of what they created for that. It's just amazing the things that they created for that course. So uh, that was the first time I'd done it. I'm definitely going to do that again. Okay. There's a meme that goes around. I think it's from some Quentin Tarantino film where Leonardo DiCaprio says, you had my interest in now you have my attention. I, I forget exactly how it goes, but you really have my attention at that point. You're basically yeah. teaching them not just how to follow a framework like Bootstrap or Zurb, but you're actually teaching them to build their own build their framework, own. their own grids, to document it, yep. to do something that the designers of a major framework would have to do. Yes. And so wow. the important thing to remember here is that this is not just let's learn to code. I mean, obviously, that's a big part of it. But this is Harvard, and so a really big part of what we teach are critical thinking skills. So it's really important to me that a student can take a look at a particular project and say, okay, so what's the right way to address this, realistically speaking? What are the positives and negatives of writing our own codes from scratch, absolutely from scratch, from the bottom up for this particular project versus an existing responsive design framework? So let's, let's weigh those, build it or buy it as the debate goes. And if we decide that we're going to, quote, buy it, we're going to use a responsive design framework, should we be using Bootstrap or Foundation or UIKit or some other particular technology that's out there? And why? So in fact, in this second term of the course, we covered UIKit over a couple of weeks. I wanted them to actually work with one of these existing responsive design frameworks to work with somebody else's SaaS that was part of the goals, but also to make sure that they get a sense of what a responsive framework is good for and what it's not good for, where you get hung up and so forth. And at the end of that unit, as part of their assignment, they actually had to write a two-page paper <laughs> comparing which is better, UI kit or a responsive design framework, and defend yourself. Explain why you're picking one or the other, because most likely the answer is that it depends, which is always the right answer. Uh, so what does it depend on? How would you make your decision? Okay, that's some high-level, Harvard-level thinking right yep, there. Yep, yep, For people that are, well, what kind of skills do they come in with? I presume they're almost brand new to the web and you are t taking them from ground zero? Yep, yep. Uh, many of them do come in with no background at all. We have a fundamentals of web development class that will teach you HTML from knowing absolutely nothing. We have an intro to content management systems class. We actually have our students work with Joomla, Drupal, and WordPress, generally the latest versions of all of those. And I, when I was teaching that class, I had to drop it because I'm now teaching some other things. But when I was teaching that class, I encouraged the students to build the same website over and over again because it was so good for them to try like, okay, I'm going to build this thing in Joomla. 
Now I know how that works. Let me try putting it into WordPress. What's it like to try to build this in WordPress? What worked well? What is different? Where are the WordPress positives and negatives and consequently Joomla's? And then now let's put it all in Drupal and see how that goes. So that was a really powerful class for a lot of people. And they got a lot of out of that. They could talk intelligently about which was the best CMS for a given situation rather than you remember that epidemic of articles that was out there like, which is better, Joomla, WordPress, or Drupal? Well, shockingly, it's the one that I know best that's clearly <laughs> the best for every situation. So I'm on a mission to try to get people to think critically about what they do, that it's never one answer is right for everything. And so if you have to choose between technologies, why are you choosing the technology that you are? And what are its downsides? And be clear about that. Okay, so to some extent, you're taking the most popular frameworks, the most popular CSS frameworks. Obviously, each situation is different, but Bootstrap and Zerb are, by some distance, the most popular frameworks. Mm -hmm. UIKit is maybe a distant third or perhaps uh, fourth or fifth. Yeah, somewhere down the list, <laughs> yes. It, did the students in general have a, a different reaction to each of these? Was Did one of them come out as easier to use, as better than the others, or was it always an it depends situation? I actually, I didn't have the students look at all three of those. We only looked at UIKit. And the reason okay. why was this. I wanted the students to work with both the framework itself and I wanted them to work with the SAS files because we had learned how to write SAS. And so uh, all those frameworks ship with SAS files. I felt like students a lot of them had a, some exposure to Bootstrap coming in, either through another class or in some of the some cases, some of them already worked with it in the workplace. For foundation, the Zurb foundation, to get to the SAS files sometimes requires command line. And my motto has always been the command line is nothing but tears and wailing, especially when <laughs> taught online. So we do not do command line stuff. Let other instructors do that. I don't want to go there. So I, I would have taught foundation, but for that. It was just too difficult to get to the SAS files otherwise. So UIKit offered an easy way to get to their SAS files. Plus, they have a really interesting way of going about their various components. So for example, in Bootstrap, if you want to put in a responsive navigation bar, you can just find that snip of code in Bootstrap. You just copy the snip, you drop it in, provided that you've hooked up your web page to the right CSS and JavaScript, it just works. You know, you have your nav bar, you collapse the page, you get your hamburger button. It's awesome. With UIKit, <laughs> they, they have split this up over four or five different little components. You have to actually like, okay, so I want to do an off canvas thing. So I need one component for that. I need a component for the hamburger button. I need a component to for the width to trigger when exactly I want that to appear. So what they did was rather than bundling the technologies together, they've split them down to tiny pieces, which if you know what you're doing in a coding realm, that might be a real advantage because I can now string together these little bits of code exactly as I want. But if you are a less knowledgeable or less experienced programmer, A, or B, you're a very experienced programmer, but your realm is the back end. We have a lot of PHP and MySQL people who love using Bootstrap because they know nothing about the front end and they don't want to, and that's cool. I think you'd find UIKit very difficult to use under those sorts of circumstances, and you'd find Bootstrap much easier because everything is done for you in Bootstrap, and that's not true with UIKit. Okay, so Bootstrap still lives up to its reputation as perhaps the the easiest, most beginner-friendly of the frameworks to get into. It may yes. not be the most advanced with experience. You may get more out of something like UIKit or Zurb, but it's still the entry-level favorite. 
I would definitely agree with that. And that's part of the reason that a lot of people like it. Foundation is a bit more complicated, but it's done intentionally that way. Their attitude is, we don't want to give you too much styling out of the box because we expect that you're going to take the SAS files and you're going to modify them to do whatever you want, make this look however you want. So we're going to build this a little bit differently. So it's so you don't have to cancel out all of these styles as you do with Bootstrap. You have to overwrite a whole bunch of stuff to put in your own styling. Foundation is just much more stripped down out of the box. UI Kit's a weird combination of easy and hard. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, UIKit 2 was, I think, easier to use. UIKit 3 has gone more more towards the components, and it's still in beta, so they're still adding stuff. But it's an, an interesting one for, especially, I mean, they're put out by Utheme, which was a group that originally made Joomla templates. It's gone on to make WordPress themes. And so they think about the back end, and they, ha- they have components for supporting that. So they have like a HTML text editor, which is something that you actually won't find in Bootstrap or Foundation. It never occurred to them to put such a thing in. Yeah, we use theme for some of our WordPress sites, mm-hmm. that they have an entire page builder, or in fact, an entire site builder, which is pretty slick. It's all built on the WordPress customizer. Yeah. Uh, I guess UIKit is the foundation of that. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of years ago, you were probably teaching something very different. The class evolves every year. Yeah. What's your gut feeling at the moment about what you'll be teaching in a couple of years? Are we going to be moving away from using those frameworks and moving to CSS Grid? What are you feeling about the next leap for what you teach, for what the most useful tools for the students are going to be? Oh, that is such a great question. <laughs> so, well, all right. You know, people always say that when um, the question is really hard and almost uh, probably a bad question. No, it's a, it's it's a great question, and it's a question I, I think about a lot, actually. So first of all, let's just say that CSS Grid is going to take over everything. It's definitely, it's here. Uh, it is our first true layout tool that we've ever had on the web that's not a hack. We oh. hack Flexbox to lay out web pages. We hacked Floats to lay out web pages. We hack Tables to lay out web pages. So for people that know me through through the Drupal world or perhaps the WordPress world may not know that we still have a, a Joomla side to our business. We've got uh, JoomlaShack.com, which builds Joomla templates and yeah. so on. Mm-hmm. And the new version of Joomla coming out sometime this year is Joomla 4. Uh, it's going to be using Bootstrap 4 when it comes out. Sure. And one of our designers was getting ready to move some of the designs from the old version of Bootstrap to Bootstrap 4. Right. They started talking with the Joomla team and they were submitting some patches saying, hey, let's move everything over to Bootstrap 4. And the Joomla team's response was, in fact, we've decided not to go too much into Bootstrap 4. We're going to hold back and we're going to try and build everything with CSS Grid instead. Uh Bootstrap 4 is going to be available, but we think that the best bet is to try and do as many layouts as possible with CSS Grid. Right. Rather than the big bulky framework that the people are used to. Right. And you sound almost entirely committed to that vision as well. <sighs> All right. Depends so, on the day. Yeah. Well, no, it, it depends on why we're talking about people using Bootstrap. So I really believe that there's two reasons for Bootstrap's popularity ultimately. One is it's an actual documented thing. If you think about the way we've built front ends for many, many, many years, like since the beginning of the web, every front end was constructed custom from scratch. We never really reused code that much. We pretty much did something special for every single person. And it was the nature of what we were doing, especially in the early years. There really wasn't anything there that we could reuse. So when Bootstrap came out, it was finally this documented thing that you could put into your front end 
And when the next webmaster took over, they didn't look at it and go, I have no idea what this person did. We have to rebuild the entire website. So that's that's one big benefit of Bootstrap. But the other one is laying web pages out with floats is hard. And it's hard because people do not remember that when you float something, you have to clear it. <laughs> and I, I tell my students, when you float, you have to clear, tattoo it on your forehead if you remember to clear, it's really not that bad. But honestly, most people don't. And so as you lay out web pages with floats, wild and wonderful things happen. You have no idea why they're happening because when a float goes wrong, it looks so off. You, you're just panic. You have no idea where to start troubleshooting the problem. So what Bootstrap did was they gave everybody a way of laying out a web page that worked consistently across browsers, and I didn't have to learn how to do a float. Plus, it was responsive. And so there was a lot of stuff there that let people build perhaps beyond their ability level and their knowledge in terms of HTML and CSS. So Grid is amazing, absolutely amazing. One of the things I have my students do is build a Mondrian painting with CSS Grid. So Piet Mondrian was a painter in the 1930s, he was Dutch. And he's the guy who made the paintings that had the squares of yellow and, and red and blue and white with the black lines in between. You probably vaguely know what I'm talking about. Now, if you Google for him, you'll find some of his paintings. Yeah, you can lay these out. It Pardon? looks like, it's very 70s. It looks like almost a carpet sometimes, very geometric lines. Yeah. Very blocky. Yeah, super yeah. blocky. And you can lay those out with grid very quickly. I teach people to do that in conference talks. But in order to do something like that, you actually have to know something about CSS. You have to know something about HTML, how to structure a web page. What's going to be your parent? What's going to be the child? What's the container? And what's the item in terms of working with Grid? And so what will happen is if Grid takes over just in its sort of out-of-the-box format, the entire front-end community is going to have to up their skills. They're actually going to have to learn more HTML and CSS. And, you know, honestly, a lot of people are always looking for shortcuts. So I anticipate there's going to be some sort of framework, maybe, that will wind up using Grid. The hard part about that is Grid is two-dimensional, whereas Bootstrap is one-dimensional. So to explain what that means, Bootstrap, as you think about laying out a web page, you just think about one row and the next row and the next row, and how many boxes are in each one of those rows. The rows stack on top of each other as you go down the web page. But in terms of Grid, we're thinking about what goes across the page and what goes down the page. So if you're so old, you remember table-based layouts, you might remember call spans and row, row spans. They're back again, baby. <laughs> They're called something else now, but it's basically that kind of layout that we have to think about. And so canning something like that into a responsive design framework, it's actually really difficult that to write some reusable code that, that somebody could do something with that over and over again. So what's coming will be really interesting to see how people resolve that particular problem and whether they can put it into a responsive design framework. Does it get very mathematical at that point? Mathematical in what way? In terms of making a, a CSS grid responsive, where's the, where do the complications, where do the headaches come in? Oh, it's actually really easy, especially as we start to throw in, again, if you throw in a few more levels of technology, it gets easier, but you have to learn those levels of technology. So now, even with, with CSS variables and CSS calc, we can establish some parameters at the top of our CSS document, change those values in the uh, media queries 
without actually changing all the rest of our CSS, and we can have our web page design change. There's some really cool stuff that's coming down the pike. But it does mean that you have to know what a media query is and how it works. You have to learn how to think mobile first. Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> you're taking these students who are fairly new to web design, you're getting them up and running. Yeah. Not just with these skills, but also with, with video and with storytelling and yeah. a whole bunch of different skills they're going to need yep. for digital media. Yep. Have you given any thought to some of the newer platforms like Squarespace, Wix, Weebly, in terms of teaching those in your class, would they be beneficial for some of the people that are not so technical, that may be video focused, that may be focused on other digital aspects rather than digging into the code? Yeah, I love Squarespace. Uh, I just put out a lynda.com course on, on Squarespace, actually. Squarespace is something I would never teach at Harvard. That's completely inappropriate. It's a Because it's commercial sort. or...? No, it's just sort of a clicky sort of interface, and there's not enough there really to dig into to teach. Yeah, not at a master's level and not at Harvard. But I could definitely see my students maybe making a small, like you say, a small site about their film and having them figure it out on their own. Because, of course, we want our students to be able to learn how to learn technology. So critically important. You can spend a lot of money going to to school, and your degree is out of date as soon as you graduate, unless you keep up with the material. So, yeah, I think Squarespace is totally awesome. I wish I had had it when I started in this field 18 years ago. So it's... It's by far your favorite of those definitely. Wix, Weebly style platforms. Definitely. Definitely my favorite of those. Uh, they have really great looking templates. They have 24-7 customer support. So when wait, you're... Wait, cli- are, you, are you just repeating the, um, the the advert you hear on all the podcasts? Isn't that... That's their tagline, right? Is it? Uh, 24-7 support. Well, it could be, but but that is actually one of the best things of all, because I remember freelancing and having people call me on a Sunday morning to say, I'm working on my website and this thing I don't understand and what's going on. I don't want those phone calls. <laughs> even, the, um, even the biggest traditional hosting companies have big chunks of downtime with their support most often. Yeah. Actually going 24-7 is quite remarkable. Yes. Yes, it is. So it's really wonderful that they have somebody they can call if there's something they want to do. The other really important thing is that a lot of people have been building WordPress sites for this particular audience. With a WordPress site, you have to pay for hosting. You have to make sure that you update the CMS. You have to update all of the plugins and make sure you don't have any security holes. You have to deal with it when it gets hacked and so forth. With Squarespace, they are taking care of all of that for you. They are completely updating all of that seamlessly behind the scenes. So people say, oh, well, Squarespace costs money, WordPress is free. True, but you still have to pay for hosting for WordPress. Hopefully they're paying you to do the updates for WordPress. And that will at least wind up being on par with and possibly more expensive for WordPress as compared to your price for Squarespace. And then in my experience, clients never really understood like what was a hosting fee and what did it mean that we had to update the website? I don't see any difference, you know? So Squarespace does that all behind the scenes, which is really great. I think that's in their their ubiquitous podcast pitch as well. Uh Nothing to update ever. Yeah, yeah. That's really important for this particular target audience. Now, the downside, of course, that I can hear all the WordPress people screaming is, oh, but there's only like 20 things or whatever it is that you can do with Squarespace. It, they're in terms of like plugins, right? So-called plugins, if we call them the WordPress name. So if you want to do that thing, 
in Squarespace and it, it's not already built into Squarespace, it can't be done. So with WordPress, you have how, how many plugins are they up to now? You know, 10,000 plugins to choose from. It, inevitably, you'll find something that does what you want it to do. So you're very limited with Squarespace, but that's actually the beauty of it. It prevents your clients from getting into trouble for smallish five to 10 page websites. They get what they get. And I've actually found working with a few clients of my own with Squarespace that people are okay with that. Well, this is what the software does. I'm really sorry. Let's work with the limitations that we have to get it to do what you want what you want it to do. Uh, and um, p- people have been accepting of that. So some platforms like Shopify have mm-hmm. a, a thriving ecosystem of yeah. plugins, almost like WordPress, yeah. whereas Squarespace goes the opposite way and right. says, we're going to allow these, these features and that's it. Yep. You uh, get that, what you get and you don't get upset. That probably makes it much easier to provide 24-7 support exactly. if there's a very strictly limited feature set. That's right. Exactly true. Yeah. Yep. But at the same time, you can you can grab things, you can drag them around on the page, you can rearrange the look and feel. They are forward-minded in terms of how it looks on the phone, how it looks on the tablet. You can take a look at all of those. And it's easy to switch themes, which is a problem that you have with Wix and Weebly, that sometimes you wind up building out the site with one theme. If you want to move to another theme, you basically have to rebuild the entire website. Squarespace will actually let you switch those themes relatively seamlessly. Oh, so they've done a really good job of hitting some of the key pain points. Yes, yes, exactly. some of the other hosted platforms like Wix and Weebly have. Yep, exactly. So we've been getting more and more contact from some of those companies. Equid, Shopify, Wix, these companies are interested in reaching out and I guess trying to attract some of the existing WordPress, Joomla, Drupal audience. Right. I'm pretty sure they have their eyes on taking away big, big chunks of the small business market from the open source products. Absolutely. So to wrap up, could you give us a, a quick overview of what you're doing for OS training? You're working on a series of Bootstrap 4 videos. Yes. Which has been delayed for a long time because well, Bootstrap 4 was delayed for a long time, right? Oh, I'm sorry, Steve. Yeah, Bootstrap 4 was delayed for a long time. And then, well, the Harvard Extension program has been growing, which is great news. But this spring, I thought I was going to have time to work on it. And then we wound up with 40 students for finishing up the digital media degree who needed to take capstone this spring instead of the normal 20, which is a great problem to have. But it means that I had to take on a third class this spring. And I was just flat out working on all of that in addition to conferences and <laughs> other projects that are already had running in this and are already committed to in the springtime. So now that the term is done, I should be finishing up these videos very quickly. That'll be great because we're at Bootstrap 4.1.1 now. So the big bugs are out. It's a great time to be recording. So you're going to be taking people through a single project showing them how to build a bootstrap foresight? Yeah, so I'm actually in the uh, the grid portion of the course. I'm actually going to keep it higher level than actually building out a page. We're just going to look at grid and we're going to look at the various ways it can work 
just in a sort of an example web page, just to look at all the different things that we can do. And then as we move into some of the additional features of Bootstrap that are relevant to a content management system. So things like cards or the media object layout and some of the CSS styling that you could use in a CMS, that will start my example where I'm actually going to build all of this out in a single HTML web page. And we'll, we'll layer that stuff on in addition to the grid layout. And the reason why I did that is because layout is one of the big reasons that people use Bootstrap. And so understanding what options are available to you is very helpful rather than just sort of copying what somebody else did. Being able to thoughtfully think through exactly how you should lay out that web page is, is relatively important. So that's why I took the approach that I did. One thing I will not cover in that course is actually all of the JavaScript things that come with Bootstrap. So things like tooltips and the image carousel and tabs and accordion panels and so forth. That's all stuff that you generally, in a CMS, you're going to address through some kind of plugin or module or extension of some kind. That is the better way of addressing all of that. So rather than using Bootstrap as your methodology for including that functionality. Oh, so this will be Bootstrap for talk from the point of view of someone that may be using it in a CMS context. I know Bootstrap is by some distance the most popular Drupal 8 theme. It'll be in the Joomla core. Right. Uh, you go on WordPress.org, there are 5,000 Bootstrap-based WordPress themes available. Sure. Yeah, you're fo rather than Bootstrap by itself, you're going to be focusing on what people would need if they're using it in a, a CMS context. Correct. Correct. Yeah, if you were building a custom theme. Yep. Oh, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to yeah. do the videos first and then convert it into a book. Sounds great. Um, great. And... Where can people keep up with you to see where you're speaking, to see what you're writing? You're still publishing a ton of content on places like Linda and Smashing Mag and other places. Yes. What's the best way to keep up with the 1001 things that Jen's doing? <laughs> oh, you can always look at my website, which is at jenkramer.org. And that's uh, Kramer with a K. Or you can take a look at my Twitter feed. I am Jen for Web. That's J-E-N number four W-E-B. Um, you could also look for me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash webdesigngen. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us, Jen. Thank you for having me, Steve. It was great talking to you.